Well, perhaps it's a, a good time to get underway with this question and answer session. So, really, this is your space. You ask the questions. I've got one written question, which uh, I will come to. But let's see if there are any. Yeah. yeah I, um, my, my understanding is that our mind, the way that the plans and schemes, mm-hmm. that's as a result of Duca. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's a good part of the human, human condition? Okay, I'll just repeat. The question: um, The mind that plans and schemes is part of dukkha, and is dukkha part of the human condition? I think that's basically what he's yeah. saying. That's right. There's another bit. Yeah. Um, do you think that in the past humans were living in a state of awareness? Uh, I think. Did everybody hear that? In the past, were did were humans living in a state of awareness? Okay, let's try and deal with these two parts separately. Yes, I do think dukkha is part of the human condition. That's the first part. Um, I think the the Buddha himself sees very much that, in a way, the world is structurally incapable of providing us with satisfaction, ultimate satisfaction, because there is always going to be change. There is always going to be change. There's always going to be that inevitability um, and mutability and transience of things and people and loved ones and so on and so forth. So it is part of the human condition. That doesn't mean we can't militate against it or mitigate it in some way. And that's what really this path is concerned with, actually helping us to alleviate unnecessary dukkha, which in some senses we are creating. So a lot of our thought patterns, coming back to the first part of your question, a lot of our thought patterns are, as we well know, I'm sure you've experienced it this week, as you well know, are repetitive and negative and actually quite destructive a lot of the time. Particularly the inner critic, which we seem to have so well developed here in the West, it can be very, very damaging it um, doesn't seem to be such a problem with most of the Eastern cultures I've ever lived in. Um, but it's certainly highly developed in the West. In regards to the first part of the question, I mean, or the latter part, I should say, the second part, you know, was there a state of grace, really, is what you're talking about? No. <laughs> I think it's. I think it would be the Buddha's answer, and certainly it would be my answer. There has been no human condition where there has been much more awareness. It's, um, it's always been left to individuals to really develop this sense of awareness. Now, the important point about this is awareness is a human capacity. This is what we're talking about. Sometimes I even hesitate. I'm kind of can do something on the back of the question you've asked here. Sometimes I even hesitate in talking about a lot of this stuff as being Buddhist. You know, it's... How would I put it? It's human psychology. It's, it's uh, you know, when we start talking about awareness or mindfulness, this is not Buddhist. This is human. This is what humans have as a capacity. It's uh, an underused and often neglected capacity, and therefore it remains often a nascent state. 
you know, and even in the Buddha's own time, if you actually kind of track his life through the text, it was not an easy time. This is a time of political turmoil and transition, the movement away from agrarian societies into kind of centralized power. Um, it was a great period of, of upheaval in northern India, eventually giving rise to a centralized monarchy in northern India, which governed the whole of well, the whole pretty well of India, apart from a tiny bit of the south. So it was a big period of transition, and one could look around and say, well, perhaps in the Buddha's time it was much more aware. No, it wasn't. Um, we have some pretty nasty things going on um, in this period. Before that, I was probably thinking because uh, I, I guess that animals don't experience nuclear well, I'm assuming that. Animals, uh, mm. <laughs> and, I, and I was thinking, you know, maybe when we were living warm within nature, um, perhaps we didn't experience nuclear so much. I mean, I know there's kind of lots of mythologies about this sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, Animals do, from the Buddhist point of view, experience dukkha. They experience pain. Pain is dukkha. I mean, this is actually quite clear. He says this, you know, what is, what is dukkha? Pain is dukkha. You know, old age is dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Being born is dukkha. <laughs> so it's a pretty long list. Um, not being with what you want is dukkha. Being with something you don't want is dukkha. You know, so it comes up with a big list of what is dukkha. Now, some of it you can do something, some, some of it you can do things about, whilst others you cannot. Um, animals definitely experience pain. Whether they then add to that dukkha in the way that we do, yeah, I'm no animal psychologist, I don't know. I wouldn't think so, personally. But we have a great propensity of creating more misery out of misery. You know, this is what we're doing. We're amplifying and exaggerating a lot of the dukkha that just comes to us as being part of life. This is what we're doing with it. We, it's like, if I was using a simile, it's like probing a tooth ache. You know, constantly keep sticking your tongue at it just to see if it really is painful. Yeah. And a lot of what we do in ordinary life is exactly that. We keep going back to the same thing and giving it a good poke to see if it really is as painful as I thought it was. <laughs> yeah. So this is what we're doing. Now, whether there's a kind of, I don't know, sort of Edenic existence before the Buddha doesn't talk about anything about this, as far as he's concerned... Dukkha has always been a phenomena. It's always been something there. The one thing that you'll find that characterizes the Buddha's teaching is the lack of any kind of metaphysical speculation there about what was before or what was, what's going to come after. There is no real metaphysical speculation. He's very much a pragmatic, practical thinker or practical um, teacher. He teaches about what we can do about this life at the moment. Um, there's kind of a little amusing bit in the history of Buddhism, actually, in, in, which is that the Buddha takes Hindu notions of creation 
and he creates a mythology himself, which is actually a huge joke. He's making fun of it. Now, the, what happened historically is the tradition then starts to take this as being an actual account of how creation was, came about. And it's absolutely absurd, the whole thing. It's a big joke. Um, but those that came after him were often literalists who didn't actually understand the jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just thinking a lot about how uh, the planning mind has been incredibly creative mm. and uh, very constructive in all kinds of ways. The planning mind is often invents all kinds of things that can reduce suffering. Mm. The planning mind is imagination. Mm-hmm. I just find often the references to planning mind are very sort of reductive that it's Dukkha, but it's not just Dukkha, which is no. so Okay, for those who didn't hear, this is a question about the planning mind that often seems to overstate the case. I think this is what the point, that the planning mind is always dukkha and that the planning mind isn't because actually the planning mind is involved in a lot of the inventions that actually overcome a lot of human distress and suffering and things like this. And my kind of response to that is, yes, I think there is. There is an over-exaggeration. The planning mind isn't all dukkha. It's the planning mind used in areas where it has no real purchase than when it becomes dukkha. For example, in trying to solve emotional problems. This is where the planning mind has no real grip on what's, you know, what's there. It actually usually exacerbates the problem, makes it worse. So, yes, I too agree. I tend to think there's a kind of an awful lot of derogatory statements made about the planning mind and the rational mind. And there's nothing wrong with the rational and planning mind. It's a fantastic thing. Look what it does for us. You know, none of you would have got here for a start-off <laughs> if you hadn't had a good planning mind. Um, but it's almost the application of the planning mind in areas where it really has no grip that is, in a sense, under critique. It's not the planning mind per se. It's the mind when it's applied, that rational mind when it's applied to problems which can't be solved in a rational way. Now, in the kind of other area where I'm involved in, in MBCT, they often talk about discrepancy-based processing, which is actually very, it's a very long-hand term for something very simple, which is actually what the planning mind is. It says, look, I'm here and I want to get there. So how do I go about getting from here to there? You know, so it's actually it's bridging the discrepancy between where you are and where you would like to be. And that's fine for even invention and creation and all the sorts of things we do, and particularly the problem-solving that's involved, for example, in creating scientific discoveries, which um, you, know, you, know, you want to solve a particular disease or the problem of a particular disease, so you go about all the research of bridging that gap between what you know now and how you get to solving the problem of a particular worldwide you know, epidemic or disease or something. However, when it comes to emotional problems, um, we can't do this. It tends to think it can, that in other words, I'm unhappy now, I want to be happy, so therefore I'll try and think my way to happiness. And this doesn't work. Um, this, I think, is where it actually ends up creating more dukkha, where we 
end up being so much up in the head trying to solve the problem of often existential emotional issues where they don't actually uh, where they actually can't really do anything where they can't actually really solve any problems so it's not the planning mind per se it's the planning mind misapplied yeah Yes. How do you stay in the moment and write the novel? Possibly not. It's not about living in the moment totally. I mean, that would be impossible, wouldn't it? We, again, I would just say, just from a practical issue, you can't live in the moment totally. But what you can do is live in the moment a lot, a lot more than we do now. You know, to be present in our lives rather than be future or be past. Now, if you're engaged in any creative act, I think you're usually involved in something future. You have a vision about where it wants to go, of how it's going to look, or if it's a piece of writing, what your conclusion is going to be, and things like that. And so these are often using rational creative mind. And actually tapping into other areas, I think, of the mind as well. But it's, uh, it's often using that rational creative mind. But be present when you can be present. This is really what it is. I think what actually tends to happen is the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater a little bit, often with this. We over-critique and actually say, well, it's all about living in the present. Well, you can't do that. But there's something very powerful about living present experience when you can. You know, this is what we do here. This, we can build much, much more of it into our lives and we can be much more connected um, with our lives as it unfolds in that moment-to-moment basis. But then there's all the other stuff that we're involved in. And that's where the other dimension of the mind comes in. Yeah, so I don't think it's not an either-or, it's an and-both. I think there tends to be this rhetoric of over-emphasis on the now, you know, let's use Eckhart Tolle, you know, the power of the now and all this sort of stuff. Um, there tends to be this overemphasis because there's always been this overemphasis on the rational mind, I think. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's unfortunate, really, because it doesn't see the balance. I mean, the one thing that's very clear about the Buddha's teaching is it's always a middle way. It's always about the utilization of what basic capacities that we have. We have the capacity to be absolutely present and to be, actually, that's the word I would use, to be just in this world with our lives unfolding, to be present for it. And we also have this capacity for rational thought and manipulation and creativity and all of this as well. And that's also important. So it's a balance between the two. It's not the imbalance you can, you can know. I mean, for example, the, the, you know, the, the, the mind that's planning, you, you can actually direct a mind and say, I know that I'm going to be planning and this is what I'm going to be doing at this moment in time. Often we don't, we get caught up. You know, we get swept along with things where we actually don't know what we're doing a lot of the time. So sometimes it's useful to pause and say, what am I doing here? What is going on? You know, rather than just being swept along on a whole tide of automatic reactivity that you're engaged in. Yeah, so of course you can be absolutely present for planning. Uh, I would suggest it's a, probably a better way of planning. <laughs> yeah. um, there's this phrase, um, everything that arises passes away. Yes. 
yeah. Yeah. Of itself, yeah. And is not self. And is not self, yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to touch on this tomorrow night. Um, this is going to be part of what we're talking about. What is the self? Well, let me just give you, without going into detail, because I will go into detail tomorrow night, but I mean, one of the basic things about the notion of the self. Again, I'm not sure whether everybody heard the, the question. Okay, there's this phrase, everything arises and passes away and is not self. The question was, what then is self? Okay. So, um, this is an interesting question from a Buddhist perspective because we talk about not-self. So what does that mean? Well, first of all, let me distinguish it from being no-self. There's an awful lot hangs on one little consonant here, uh, the difference between no and not-self. What the Buddha is saying is, what is not-self? So we don't end up identifying things as being-self which are actually not-self. Now, he, goes, he gives us a list, and I'll talk about this a little bit tomorrow night, uh, of processes which actually go to make up what we nominally label as being self. But actually, in and of themselves, those processes are not self. Okay? Now, I think you're going to get the impression of what I'm talking about, but just by hearing that word process, that is what the self is. It's a process. It's not a thing. Okay, so you and I are processes. We are unfolding processes. You know, what we think of as being unchanging is not unchanging whatsoever. You know, our perceptions change, our body changes, and these are all some of the elements that make up what we putatively call the self. Our form changes, our feelings change, our you know, our body changes, our perceptions change, our consciousness is constantly changing according to which objects it comes in contact with, and so on and so forth. And so actually what the self is is an unfolding, changing phenomena. Self as verb, that's all we've got to think of, is the self is a verb, it's not a thing, it's not a noun. And this is one thing actually I might add for those who are not familiar with material in in Buddhist languages. But in the languages that these texts were originally composed in, there are far more use, often, of verb forms than there are of noun forms, because the Buddha was trying to give us a sense of process, always. And when we get later literature, this becomes even more pronounced, the use of verb forms. So it's rather than self, it's selfing. This is what we're engaged in, selfing. (laughs) Um, rather than, you know, you've heard me use this word sangsara, which indicates this notion of going round in circles. Uh, often people seem to think it's like a place, sangsara, or it isn't. It's sangsara-ing, that's what we're engaged in, going round in circles. Uh, nibbana is nibbana-ing, these are all verb forms in Pali and Sanskrit. Um, it doesn't come across in English because we end up making them into nouns again unfortunately, but the self is not a noun. And this is what we end up mistaking it for. We end up mistaking it for being some kind of thing underlying the phenomenal change that we are, whereas actually we are the phenomenal change. That is exactly what we are. Is it saying that there's no constant? There is no constant. There is no constant. 
The whole lot is a process, that's right. Yeah. Again, for those who didn't hear, the subsidiary question was, there is no constant then. And, that's, and I totally agreed, because there is no constant, there is no unchanging phenomena within us. Everything is changing. It's a bit like, you know, how you construct a rope. Yeah. Do you know how to construct a rope? The rope is not made of one continuous thread. It's made of overlapping threads. Yeah. All intermeshed. All, okay, this is a little bit static as an analogy, but they're all intermeshed. There's no one single thread runs through the whole rope. Yeah. It's just the strength of it comes from all those overlapping fibers um, within it. Now, in a way, what appears to be a self is simply a construct. That is all. Actually, this is the good news. You probably think, you know, some of you, I can see some of you looking slightly horrified by this idea. This is actually the good news, that you're not a self, <laughs> in the sense of a fixed self. Because if we were a fixed self, we might as well all go home. Because <laughs> we couldn't affect any change. You know? If, for example, the underlying essence of any one of us in this room was bad, let's just use that as a silly example, but you know, it was evil or bad, then you could never change. There would be no change. There would be no possibility of being any different. Now, of course, what this, is, this whole path is saying, this path of psychological transformation, as I tried to indicate to you the other night, what this whole path is saying is that you can change. There is always this possibility. You might have to do a lot of hard work but there is always this possibility of change. If you look at Buddhist cultures, they're replete with stories. And one of the most famous stories is something called Angulimala in the early Pali scriptures of wrongdoers. Angulimala, by the way, is a character in the Pali scriptures who's probably the first recorded um, serial killer. (laughs) He goes around killing people to collect fingers to make a rosary from. You know, this is what he does. And whether we believe the story or not, I don't think it's meant to be particularly true in the, in the big sense of the word. What it's meant to be is a story about somebody who can even engage in something so horrific and still change suitably and sufficiently enough to become awakened, to become an awakened one. This doesn't mean he escapes his past and what he's done because people still revile him. Still people, he says, you know, people spit at him as he walks past, despite the fact he's become awakened. You know, so it's not like escaping your past, but it does mean that you can change sufficiently. I think this is a personally, and I can only reflect on this personally, a very um, beautiful picture of human existence that anybody, no matter what their conditioning is, can have the possibility of changing and becoming something other than they are now. Yeah. So actually being a not-self is quite a good thing. I quite like being a not-self. <laughs> There's two questions, first and then. Yeah. Um, apparently Buddha said that there's nothing out there and there's not a God. So when we uh, start our meditation by saying, um, may we be safe and protected, or when we do the putting hands together, which mm. means um, may all sentient beings be uh, safe and free from um, mm. suffering. Who, who are we actually addressing that to? 
<laughs> so it's an interesting question. Again, I don't know if everybody heard that question. It was saying, you know, given that the Buddha basically says there is nothing out there, i.e. there is no God, um, when gestures like this gesture are made and when we say, may we be safe and protected, who we are addressing this to, effectively? Well, you're addressing it to yourself in many ways. Um, you're addressing it to that development of the mind. For example, may I be safe and protected, is a wish. It's, it's something which is actually a friendly wish towards yourself that you're developing. I see these more as wishes rather than prayers. You know, I would never claim that you know, when the hands are put together and you know, may all beings be happy or may beings, all beings be safe and protected as well. Again, it's something which is um, affecting a transformation of the mind, redirecting the mind in a friendlier fashion towards others. You know, whether it ever happens or not, which is very unlikely, um, it in a sense changes you in the process of directing your mind in that particular way, directing your mind in friendlier thoughts towards yourself. You know, whether it can ever, ever be actualized is not the point actually about this. It's, it's the, the friendly, concerned wish that beings not be suffering, including yourself in that. It's an interesting one. The Buddha is pretty agnostic about the notion of God. For a start off, and one has to bear in mind that Indian culture doesn't really have a notion of God in that monotheistic sense of God. He does make fun of things like the idea of a creator, often, um, because often they take us away from the practical issues of how we live. This is primarily what he's interested in. How do we live and how does some of these thoughts affect the way we live. I mean, in, in something called the Tevijya Sutta, he actually he talks about the, the notion of a creator, not necessarily a god, but some kind of creator in this way. He says that looking for the creator is a bit like this. And he said, it's like a man coming to you and saying, I'm in love with the most beautiful girl in the world. And you say to him, What's her name? And he says, I don't know. He said, where does she live? I don't know. Um, what family does she come from? I don't know. And there's a whole list of questions like this. And he says, doesn't that man turn out to be rather silly? You know, he's trying to indicate that it's actually not a question that's directed to anything practical in many ways, where you don't know. It's kind of a whole list of metaphysical don't knows about it. So I think the Buddha actually mostly, though, is fairly agnostic about it. He, he doesn't answer, mostly, when asked these kinds of questions. Metaphysical questions, he doesn't even want to enter into debate about. He's really much, much more concerned about the practicalities of how we get on and live our lives. I just think he thinks if there are things like afterlives, gods, everything else, they're going to solve themselves in learning how to live learning how to live well. His concern is, is becoming what he calls an, a Brahmin, somebody who is pure by virtue of what they do, rather than thinking they're pure by birth. That's one of the main things that the Buddha is very concerned about. So that we, we live well in this world yeah, and help others and develop compassion and develop you know, 
ways of living that are constructive that we can live together. Even the Buddha's community, the Sangha, was all based on kind of investigations on how you live together in a moral, ethical way. I think that's happened during the history of the history of Buddhism. Um, the Buddha doesn't really have that in the early texts at all. In fact, you know, it's quite clear once the Buddha is dead, he's dead. He has no further influence in this world. He doesn't have any kind of godlike status, even if you want to put that with a small g at all. It's through the history of Buddhism that you get this growth of what I call a more religious Buddhism occurring when the Buddha becomes something almost outside and can influence. He becomes almost a mythical figure. It's very, very clear when you read the early texts, even in translation form, um, that he is walking around India, getting in contact with you know every level of his society, from the from the Rajans, the kings, all the way down to blacksmiths, uh, through courtesans and you know, the monks and the nuns who he talks to. He talks to a huge cross-section of Indian society. Uh, so much so, actually, that um, so, you know, um, sociologists of history actually often use these texts for trying to construct, not for any kind of Buddhist stuff, but for trying to construct a picture of what India was like at that particular period of time, because it's so replete with material of, of what India was like in terms of the cross-sections of society he spoke to. Yeah. Um, last night you were talking about, I think, the, the three marks of existence, but basically um, mm-hmm. ignorance, suffering, and craving, and aversion. Mm-hmm. And I understood um, how understanding is the antidote to ignorance, mm-hmm. and how metta is the antidote to dukkha, and I was curious about your use of the word generosity as mm-hmm. an antidote to craving or aversion, because usually people talk about non-attachment, which is more passive. Mm-hmm. Generosity sounds more warm and active, so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. Yeah, generosity is fundamental virtue here. Um, Well, if you actually look at it, let me kind of come at this slightly sideways. That the question really is about generosity and the place of generosity in in the practice um, and generosity seeming a very warm virtue as opposed to non-attachment, which seems quite a cold one. Or actually, is another big one that's used, renunciation. Uh, I remember teaching once in the States and somebody said, can't we use another word? (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I'm going to come in slightly slightly obliquely in Buddhist cultures um, generosity is one of the virtues that's valued above all if you actually if this was a collection say within Sri Lanka or somewhere like that of people you were Sri Lankan sitting in front of me probably the discourse I would be giving you if I was a, a bhikkhu or a monk would be primarily about generosity um, this is the virtue that's really, really um, pushed in Buddhist cultures. Um, and it's a primary virtue. It's a primary virtue. And the one thing 
why it's seen as a primary virtue is it works on this thing called self again, coming back to that question. Because actually to actually generously give is to give in a way something of yourself. And generosity is considered in a number of ways. Traditionally, it's considered to be the giving of material things. Yeah. And if you haven't got material things to give, you can give friendship. And ultimately, the greatest gift is considered to be the gift of the teaching, being given the gift of the teaching itself. It's a very active thing. It's very, very much encouraged. Um, and it's also something which, why it's actively encouraged is because unlike, I think, Western culture, where often we have to think that we have to be authentic in our giving. Look, I won't give until I feel like I'm ready to give and this emotion that, of generosity has arisen in me and now, now I feel I can give because this genuine emotion is here. In Buddhist cultures they say, actually you could wait the whole of your lifetime for that genuine emotion to arise. Yeah. <laughs> it might never come. Um, and actually one way of developing it is actually through the behavioural way. Give enough keep on giving of friendship and time and energy and sometimes material things if you have material things to give. And actually if you engage in that and you engage in it often enough, perhaps you'll get the feeling come to you of what it's really like to give, that genuine emotion. And so this is why it's really encouraged in Buddhist cultures. It's a very, very warm quality as well. It's a human quality of the heart to want to give. However, in the absence of that genuine warmth, still give. And you'll find this often, very, very often in Buddhist cultures that actually the behavior is, is the instigating factor for the genuine feeling to arise. Um, I remember one particular instance. Um, this is not giving, but this is with compassion. Where it was American, uh, was a Western student. I don't think it was American actually. He was a Western student who was railing at his Tibetan teacher, saying, "You keep telling me to be compassionate, and I don't feel compassionate." And the teacher said to him, "What does feeling have to do with it?" I just said, "Be compassionate." <laughs> you know. Um, and so I think often we're quite perplexed by this in the West because we often think that we have to have this genuine feeling before doing something. And actually a lot of the time it works the opposite way around. And so generosity is considered to be this antidote, this antidote to greed. You know, greed which is attached to self. Greed which hoards, and there's a whole load of psychological qualities which are associated with this, you know, miserliness and jealousy and all sorts of things that go on to this sense of hoarding. And it doesn't have to be hoarding money. It can be you know, kind of not giving anything of yourself in any relationship. That's a, a lack of radical non-generosity here, to not give anything of yourself in, in relationship, not to give anything in terms of friendship, not to give anything in terms of your spirit to others. So I don't know if this is kind of a response to your question more than, a, than an answer, because I think it's many-faceted that this is a primary virtue which is really encouraged in Buddhist cultures right from the very, very inception of it as a way of actually as an antidote to selfing too much. You know? When we hang on to stuff, we self 
very much. You know, it's like hoarding the last little bit of food. <laughs> you know, not wanting to give away um, the last chocolate in the box or whatever it might be, because this is all attached to thinking about me. And actually, the Buddha says, "Me" is a big piece of dukkha. <laughs> Ooh, that, that, that first, and then the other two. Yeah. Hmm. Um, How big it is in relationship to what? I, I suppose it's it's kind of not knowing about the Dharma. It's 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 asking really about how much how much it runs through the teaching. Mindfulness. Yeah. Mindfulness is probably one of the most important teachings in the whole of the early Buddhist canon. Um, the amount of times I think I mentioned this to you, it's I, we somebody I forget who it was. One of the Pali scholars I know did a kind of tot up of how frequently words are used in the Pali Canon. Certainly, words which are of virtues to be developed, and sati, the word which was translated of mindfulness, came out way over top. I mean, it was absolutely running through the teachings all the time the notion of being aware, being mindful. It's a huge portion of it. However, it doesn't stand alone because mindfulness in the traditional teachings, unlike within the more therapeutic uses which you're mentioning here, is coupled with things like ethics and virtue. Um, these have mentioned... They're never, mindfulness is never mentioned separately from other things such as how to change your life how to live a more ethical life, how to be in this world in a different way, how it develops in relationship, for example, to panya, understanding or wisdom, uh, and to other Buddhist virtues too. It's never seen in isolation. Um, in the later Buddhist psychological material, it's so much so that every moment, genuine moment of sati, pulls in all of the wholesome virtues as well another 17 wholesome virtues arise at the same time as genuine sati. Now, the one thing you... <laughs> I'm working in this context myself. The one thing you never get, actually, um, in the more therapeutic uses, of course, is people being told about their ethics. You know, whereas in Buddhist circles, you do. This is very, very important dimension to it. Um, actually, being cognizant, being aware of the ethical issues that you're involved in in your day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. So it's a huge portion if you want to know the proportionality of it. Yeah. Well, there's a couple of other questions at the back, and then I'll take some. But yeah. If so, 
where does the possibility of genuine change or genuine human freedom come, given the idea that it's a sample of determinism that right. is entitled to receive? Okay, well, the question is, I don't know if everybody heard it, all things are conditioned, where does the genuine impetus for change come if there is this kind of determinism running through the Buddha's teaching, if I'm hearing you correctly? Um, okay. Well, that all things conditioned doesn't mean necessarily that it's determined. All it's, all it's saying is that everything arises with a cause. There is nothing that's arising ex nihilo. There's nothing arises out of nothing. And actually what we're engaged in also is creating causes and effects. This is exactly what we're doing. We're creating causes and effects. Causes and effects, um, if I engage in in doing something which gives rise to an effect, which could then give rise... be then for the cause for another effect and so on and so forth, it could be just an unfolding determinism. But unfortunately, well, or fortunately, it's far more complex than that because we don't necessarily act in this linear way, that we actually engage in volitional acts which affect the so-called effects of other causes. So we're always engaged in creating yet more causes and more effects. Now, the most simple art, the most simple way of explaining this in terms of human life is this word, which is a much abused word, much misunderstood word, which is the word karma. Yeah? The word karma is usually seen as some form of determinism, which is exactly what you're saying. And I think that's a very Hindu notion of karma. Because even if I am the product of my previous past actions and that has led to unfortunate circumstances in the way that I am now, either mentally or physically or whatever, then that is not an end, it's only the beginning because how now how I act in accordance with the situation I find myself in could be deterministic I just let it play itself out or I might do things which create situations for Movement, possibilities, change, um, all sorts of things. So I think it's not simply deterministic. It's not simply the working out of a cause and effectual mechanism as such. The, The whole point about human volition is that it affects this conditioning, this conditioned, um, this conditioned chain of cause and effect so that we're always engaged in creating yet more causes which become effects, which then is the cause for future action and so on and so forth. Here, So radical change is always possible within that particular image of what cause and effect is or conditionality. So it's not simply deterministic. The kind of stuff that used to be so much around in the kind of late 60s, early 70s, oh, it's my karma. Yeah is very much a deterministic attitude, and I think very much a Hinduistic attitude, primarily, um, which has no place in Buddhism whatsoever, actually. Um, The Buddha very much talks about actually influencing and creating the conditions for change. This is exactly what we're engaging in here, creating those conditions for change to come about. doesn't mean it will necessarily occur immediately, um, but I'm creating the causes for 
the effects to come at some point in time. There was another question as well. Yeah, I think, yes, I mean, it's about the um, movement of mindfulness-based practices, really, into therapeutic areas, and whether something is being lost in that, which is obviously the thing I mentioned, which is the ethical basis, um, and what perhaps is being lost in those applications when we use them in therapeutic things. I think there is something that's being lost, um, as I keep trying to point out, because I'm involved (laughs) in um, the Oxford course where we teach students kind of the MBCT protocol and that. And the thing that's being missed is actually a lot of nuancing that's very much there in the Buddhist tradition. I see um, the kind of often the the mindfulness that's spoken about in these more therapeutic uh, interventions as being a lot more simplistic than the ones that are spoken about in Buddhism. For example, one thing I often point out to, to the students is that rather than one form of mindfulness or sati, there is a minimum four, if not at least eight, different forms of mindfulness. And some of these are about things like actually mindfully creating new concepts in your mind, you know, new narratives, new stories protecting and guarding your awareness. You know, these are all the different forms, so it's a much, much more nuanced model. That and also applied to actually thinking about how awareness applies to your moral, ethical, daily interactions as well is absolutely vital in a Buddhist context. Yes, yeah, so, but seems obviously in therapeutic relationships to be a no-no. You don't go to talking to people about their morals and their ethics. You just deal with the pathology, if you like. Um, And so from a Buddhist perspective, it's it's effective, but it's not as effective as it could be if it was uh, bringing in all the other stuff that's meant to, in a sense, help you to examine your life. Life is a pathology, rather than just clinical pathologies that, that we have and can identify readily. And if you really want to deal with that pathology of the way that you live your life, then you need all of the other material as well. Um, and I think it's a much, much more rounded and much, much more nuanced model that you get out of Buddhist psychology, really. Just to follow up, sorry, I just think the point you've made there is good because it's about philosophy, isn't it? The underlying philosophy and how that sits with any philosophies that you would normally use in psychology. Yeah. And your point about life is a good one. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, all I can say is, is, is that actually there is a great willingness in the therapeutic community to learn a lot about this. I mean, I was astonished when I was invited to do this stuff in Oxford um, that it's become a third of the course. You know, they, all these people from clinical backgrounds are coming and they get, you know, they get the, the eight-week protocol and how to teach it and all the rest of it. And then they get um, cognitive neuroscience and the CBT area also, which supports, obviously, the, the, um, the therapeutic angle. But then they get a third of the course on Buddhist psychology, you know. 
I don't think they knew quite what they were getting when they bought into this. <laughs> but I think it's very good because there is this willingness to actually show how the tradition has underpinned this practice by these many, many other different approaches to it. And this, this, as I say, much more highly nuanced understanding of what mindfulness is, really. But it's in its early stages. I mean, I, I kind of think, watch this space, it will change. I really do. You know, from my conversations with colleagues and things. Yeah. Okay, just one more question and then we'll finish here. Yeah. Earlier friendship was um, an example, one key example of generosity. I was wondering what kind of actions within that would constitute giving. Giving friendship? Yeah, or any relationship. <laughs> well, I think it's just the ability to be with others. In a friendly, open way. You know, this friendship is, well, friendliness I've talked about and used throughout the meditation sessions, haven't I? If you've been listening to it, you know, I've been introducing the notion of being friendly towards yourself. And it's kind of extending those feelings of friendliness towards yourself, towards others, in a sense, in offering that towards others. So, as we can be equally, if we can actually start to let go of that inner critic sometimes and develop a more friendly, much more wholesome attitude towards ourselves, perhaps we'll stop the carping criticism of others as well that goes on, which actually is a barrier to friendship much of the time. How can I be friendly to you if I can't be friendly towards myself? Or perhaps if I become more friendly towards myself, I can genuinely offer something like friendship to you because I'm not perfect and you're not perfect. And okay, let's just um, appreciate our imperfections here rather than keep criticising them either internally, my own, or criticising your imperfections for whatever they are because we all have them. And so this is a genuine sense of, of... coming close to others and sharing, actually, our imperfection. Yeah? We're all imperfect in different ways in this world. Um, and so friendship becomes a genuine caring for the other. It's actually the soil out of which all of the virtues arise, which, again, which is why it's another chief virtue in Buddhism, the idea of friendliness. There's a lovely saying, actually, I might as well finish off on this, because it's actually a lovely saying, is that um, out of the soil of metta, out of the soil of friendliness, arises the bloom of compassion, which is sheltered by the cool shade of the tree of equanimity and watered by tears of joy. This is a lovely image here. Yet it all starts with the soil of friendliness being friendly towards yourself and being friendly towards others and actually offering that genuine gift of friendship towards others. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.